Well, hey, everybody. It's so good to see all of you out there. I want to I add my welcome to Jonathan's welcome, especially to those of you who are visiting with us for the first time. I see a lot of, of new faces out there, uh, and we're so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. We would love the chance to meet you, answer questions you may have about our church, and, and get to know you a little bit better after the service. I hope you can stick around. Uh, you're, you're catching us midway through a series that Jonathan's already mentioned to you, a series through Luke's Gospels, Parables, which are stories that Jesus told to help his hearers and to help us understand the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. It's a kingdom that's at the heart of, of what he's for. And it's a kingdom that's often misunderstood. The parables are a tool that Jesus uses to help clear away the misunderstanding and clarify not just what that kingdom will be like, but what it would mean for us to embrace it in our lives right now. And the parable we're going to look at together today is found in Luke chapter 14. So I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn over to Luke 14. It'd be really helpful to you and to me if you had it in front of you uh, as we work our way through it verse by verse. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14 and, and cover mostly verses 15 to 24 with a little nod to verses 12 to 14. Uh, this week, uh, I read an article entitled, and I quote, Brilliant Restaurants That Won't Let You In, end quote. As it turns out, there are quite a lot of these restaurants that won't let me in. Uh, some real doozies on this list. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Take, for example, the illustrious Fat Duck restaurant in the UK. This restaurant receives roughly 30,000 calls a day requesting reservations, none of which are available for the next four, until the next four month period goes live. At which point, you know, if, I guess if you're on the phone at the right time and can afford the $400 plus per plate, excluding drinks price tag, you can get in. Consider, for example, the most exclusive Italian restaurant in New York City. This one's been packed out since 1896, but it's literally impossible for you to get a reservation to this restaurant. They don't give them out. All of their tables go to regulars. The only way to become a regular is to eat there regularly, which is to say you can only go to this restaurant and enjoy this exclusive Italian food if you get invited to go by somebody who's already been before. And then there's Markham's, a restaurant in Central Florida. I'm just going to quote to you the description of Markham's restaurant. At Markham's, it's not about who you know, like with this Italian place, or how much you can pay, like with the fat duck. At this one, it's all about where you live. The only way you can dine at Markham's restaurant is if you live in Golden Oak, Disney's gated community just four miles from the Magic Kingdom. For that, it may take the cake for the most expensive and the most exclusive restaurant as you'll need to buy a house before you can even try to buy a meal. Uber exclusive and too good for you dining options is nothing new. I mean, we've got plenty of those type restaurants, even here in our own beloved music city. But what if, what if the greatest meal in the world were open to everyone? That's the scenario that our parable this afternoon puts in front of us. It's a parable that pictures the kingdom of God, like all of them have been trying to do in one way or another, pictures the kingdom of God for us, in this case, as a joyful, overflowing, endlessly wonderful banquet with an open invitation. And if such a meal existed, one that everyone could get in on, 
Well, that would shift the question, wouldn't it? The question then in that case would not be like, can I get a table? The question then would be, are you willing to join? Not can you get in, but do you want to? That's the question Jesus puts to us as he describes his kingdom in this parable. And I want to walk it through with you, beginning in, uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12, but I want to walk it through in just a few steps. What I want to do is first show you one astonishing truth about God. It's foundational to the parable. It comes really quickly, right in the setup, and he moves on, but you won't understand the rest of the parable without it. One astonishing truth about God, and that astonishing truth about God will then set up two probing questions for us. One astonishing truth about God. Two probing questions for us. I want to begin by reading the parable. Would you please stand with me now in honor of God's word while I pick up in Luke chapter 14, verse 12. Friends, this is God's word to us. He, meaning Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. One astonishing truth about God. Here it is. Let me tell it to you and then I'll try to show it to you. The astonishing truth about God that is the foundation for this parable and the key to understanding anything that comes next is that God has invited you to complete and endless satisfaction through his friendship. The astonishing truth about God is that he has invited you to complete and endless satisfaction through his friendship. Friends, did you notice at the beginning of this parable the comment that inspired it? One of these folks that Jesus is eating dinner with says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. 
It's not that this guy is just really, really excited about the bread that's coming in God's kingdom. It's not like there's some sort of proprietary recipe. It's not super bread. That's not what his focus is on. No, what this guy has in mind is actually the, the same thing that Jesus has in mind when Jesus starts this parable with a man who throws a great banquet and invites many. Behind this man's comment and behind Jesus' parable is one of the main images that the Bible uses for the kingdom of God. The Bible pictures this kingdom as a feast, a great and joyful and abundant and unending party. Perhaps, for example, this man, like many other Jews of the first century, when he talks about the kingdom of God and the blessing of eating bread there, has in mind Isaiah chapter 25. Let me read this to you. On this mountain, Isaiah prophesied, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a feast of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It all starts with a banquet that God spreads for all peoples, whoever will come. Maybe he had in mind the invitation of Isaiah 55, just 30 chapters later in the same prophecy. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. In the prophets that gave rise to these expectations, the kingdom of God is pictured as a glorious banquet that anyone can come to. Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Friends, in this parable, Jesus doesn't try to take this man's focus off the banquet to come. This isn't one of those parables, one of those times that we've seen Jesus correcting somebody's misunderstanding about what the kingdom is like. We've seen that. that that's not what this is. This guy's thinking of the kingdom as a party and Jesus takes his terms and runs with them. It is a party. Jesus picks up what this guy says exactly as is because Jesus wants us to see the kingdom this way. It's a feast of joy with nothing to dampen it. And just as importantly, friends, he wants us to see God this way. God as the generous and joyful host behind a party that renews the world. He's the one who gives the banquet. He's the one who invites the many, verse 16. I wonder, does this fit your expectations of God? When you think of God, do you see this character? A party planner, a sponsor of a great feast, one who invites 
all who will come. I fear that many of us have other images that come more quickly to mind than this one. Maybe God seems more like the overbearing parent who only cares whether or not you've done your homework, who only shows up to tell you to stop doing the thing you'd much rather do than your homework, to put, to put an end to the fun. Or maybe something more like one of those elite and exclusive chefs that I mentioned earlier. Fine for those who can afford it, but out of range and all booked up for folks like you. Maybe that's how you see God. Or, or maybe even worse still, you imagine him as some sort of cosmic bouncer who stands at the front of the exclusive club and bounces anyone who thinks they can make it in despite how they look, despite the shame they wear, despite how little they bring to the general vibe or what's on offer. Jesus wants a different image of God for you. Can you think of a friend who's always up for a good time? A friend who's always eager to spend time with you, who, who, who you know just gets genuine joy out of sharing and you never have to worry they'll blame you for taking them up on the offer when they, when they offer to share? In the early years of our church, uh, I had a buddy like that. Uh, several of you guys are going to remember this as I set it up. It, there was a buddy early in, early in life of our church who, who pretty much every weekend, especially in the fall when, when the weather was good like this, and there was so much good sport on TV. Basically every weekend, it seems like, he had an open invite, hangout, party thing going on at his house. He was always hosting stuff. He, he, he basically let you decide if there was going to be a party that weekend just by calling him up and asking if he was going to do anything. And if not, okay, let's do something. He's always game. At, at, at this guy's house... This brother always had plenty of food, uh, probably always at least three to five varieties of meat on his grill at every, at every engagement. Tables full of wonderfully unhealthy snack food that everyone would bring. There'd be plenty of your favorite drinks in the cooler or in the fridge. And at this, at this guy's house, at these parties, you never worried that there wouldn't be enough you never worried that if you showed up, you'd be the one that, that sort of pushed it over the edge to where there wasn't enough to go around. You didn't have to worry about what you'd wear. You didn't even think about that. You didn't have to worry about what others would be thinking about you. Completely pretense free. And you didn't have to wonder if you'd be welcome. You were. Not just welcome, but wanted. I think back on those as some glorious times, and I mean that literally. What we got there was a taste of the beauty and the glory of God's kingdom. Do you know what I'm talking about? H have you had friends like that? God is a friend like that. He's the friend where overflowing goodness meets open invitation. And Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the beauty of God's character and of his posture towards us in this parable. His kingdom is a party through which he aims to satisfy every longing with his friendship. And you are invited to rejoice with him forever. We're only a couple of verses in. We haven't gotten to even the main focus of the parable. But nothing about what comes next will make any sense to you, friends. Unless first you see this God standing behind all of it. And this kingdom as something you right now are invited to rejoice in. 
It's one astonishing truth about God that's the key to everything else. Now I want to move on to two probing questions for us. Because Jesus' focus in this parable actually takes a shift, goes in a different direction, focusing not primarily on the God who stands behind this kingdom, on the host of this party that's open to everybody, but on the response to this offer among those who receive it. The question is not whether we get in or whether we're wanted. The question now is over to you and to me. How do we respond to the offer made? Two probing questions to guide our response to this one astonishing truth about God. Here's number one. Are you hungry enough to accept his invitation? Are you hungry enough to accept his invitation? Quickly, after introducing this, this banquet given by a man and, uh, where many were invited, that's verse 16. Quickly, in verse 17, Jesus shifts his focus to those who receive the invitation and how they respond. The time for the banquet has arrived. Many have uh, uh, presumably said they would come. Now it's ready. The reminder email goes out. And as soon as the reminder goes out, the excuses start to roll in. Look back at verses 18 and 20 with me. They all alike, everybody who'd already said they would come, they all alike begin to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said to him, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another says to him, I've married a wife. I can't come. Have me excused. What's going on with these excuses? At least a couple things. And the main one, like the flashing red light, don't miss this part about all these excuses, is that they're terribly, terribly lame. It's meant to be obvious. It's not that there's any, some, any specific problem with any one of these things that these people are prioritizing here. It's not wrong to buy a field or some oxen or to get married. They're all fine in themselves, but, but come on. I mean, blaming a no thanks on your spouse is the oldest excuse in the book. And who buys a field or five yoke of oxen without looking at them first? I mean, you don't not examine the oxen before you buy them. That's a lot of oxen. There's a lot on the line. The, the point behind these excuses, especially since none of these things is really incompatible with taking a night off and going to this party. The, the, the point behind these excuses is painfully clear it's not that they are it's, it's not that the things themselves are super important it's that the banquet isn't important it, it's not that the that the excuses relate to things that that are important as if you got in a terrible accident on the way sorry please excuse me it, it's that the banquet itself the thing you've been invited to just just isn't important they don't care they don't want to come and that means that the host, this friend who's invited them, he doesn't matter either. What he offers just isn't what they want. They're not hungry for this feast, this banquet, for this friendship. That's the main thing to notice. But there is another thing about these excuses that I think is at least subtly pointing us in a direction Jesus always, often points us in Luke's gospel. And that is that these folks are just 
preoccupied. They're invested in the lives that they're building for themselves now. In the tactile, tangible, seeable, touchable, short-term, measurable, alluring benefits of life in this world. Throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus warns us that wealth and possessions and short-term thinking can keep those who, who see and hear of the good news of his kingdom from responding to it, from claiming it. For themselves. Jonathan preached a few weeks ago from the parable of the sower on the different ways that, that, that people respond to the gospel when it's come to them. And, and one of the ways not to respond was, was the picture of this seed falling in the midst of thorns that as it grows up, choke the life out of it. And Jesus tells us there, these thorns picture what he calls cares and riches and pleasures of life, good things, even gifts of God that steal our appetite for the kingdom to come. Now look at what happens next. The master of this feast doesn't wring his hands and worry about whether the party's gonna make it without these treasured guests. He doesn't call it all off now that he's been rejected. No, he gets angry. He sees that this response is personal. It's a reflection on him. And he turns from those who don't want what he offers to those who are hungry for what he'll offer them. Look back again at verses 21 to 24. Go out quickly, the master says, to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, what you've commanded has been done and still there's room. So he sends him out now to the highways and the hedges, compel people to come in that my house may be filled the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. Friends, these in this time, in this place were the outcasts. The ones who will bring nothing to contribute to this feast and offer nothing to the buzz of the event. Those in the highways and the hedges, think of these as, as most likely beggars, not permitted into the city walls, forced to live out on the, the margins and the periphery, forced to, to beg what they can from those who are coming and going from the city that won't have them. These are the people who fill the master's house and surround his table. These are the ones who enjoy his great banquet. Can you see why? These are the people who don't pretend that they have better options. They have nothing to offer in return and they know that. They bring only their hunger and they leave satisfied. Friends, this dinner isn't a prize to be won. This dinner isn't even a potluck where everybody brings a little something to go around. This dinner is a gift of grace. That's what Jesus wants us to see here. And what he does by giving us this picture is also hold up to us a mirror. As in all the parables, we're meant to look for ourselves here. Especially in those who respond or don't to this powerful and precious offer. What do you see? Friends, the more options you have before you for pleasure, for power, for prestige of one sort of another, the more likely you'll be to shrug your shoulders at Jesus and what he offers to you. To say thanks, but no thanks to the offer of this feast and to keep on pressing 
your own advantage in this life as long as you can. You have as many options to take the edge off your existential gut level hunger as any people in any other time or place if you choose to use them. Many of you I know are training for something. You're good at what you do. You've got bright futures ahead of you. You could throw your heart and soul into the ladder that you're climbing. Keep your eyes fixed just on that next rung and how to grab hold of it. You could do that. Many of you have disposable income and you're surrounded by marketers who want to help you know what to do with it. You'll be tempted, friends, to believe that your dissatisfaction right now stems from what you haven't bought yet, from what you can see on the screen or the page in front of you and with one click could have on your body or in your home two days later. And if you're feeling lonely or isolated, you'll have entertainment to take your mind off of it from far more sources than you'll ever exhaust. You can chase a sense of fulfillment in the storylines of your favorite team or your favorite sitcom or your favorite reality show and chase away the sense that the connection you crave is meant to come from something, from someone beyond the shadows of this world. You could choose to take the edge off that hunger in any number of ways and throw out excuse after excuse after excuse to avoid doing business with God. You could do that. Or, or friends, you could face up to that hunger inside of you. You could refuse to satisfy it with distraction and self-indulgence. And you could let that hunger carry you right through the open door of God's kingdom to the only true source of satisfaction. See, to enter God's kingdom, you have to be hungry. There's no other way to get in. You have to see yourself in the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. You have to see yourself in these outcasts driven away by the rest of the world. Jesus is giving us in these types, he's giving us a picture of our true spiritual condition apart from him, of what we have to offer to him. See, these these folks know they're starving with nowhere else to turn. They know they have nothing to offer for food. And this is the profile of the one who will enjoy God's feast. You've got to know that there's something you're longing for that's far beyond what anything else in this world can satisfy. You'll have to know that you bring to this exchange absolutely nothing but your need. You must give up on the sense of propriety that could have kept these lame and crippled and blind and poor people from this feast. We can't give anything in return. Scandalous if we take something without offering anything in return. You got to get over that and come as they did. But if you know this hunger is in you, if you know nothing else will satisfy it, and if you know you can't pay for it, then friends, you can have it. You can have it all. God welcomes you. All of his goodness available to you all by his grace. He is this friend where great banquet meets open invitation. Do you remember Isaiah 55? 
I read from it earlier. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. The only question for me and for you is, are we hungry enough to accept God's invitation? That's the main question this parable is meant to pose to us. I want to leave you with one more. If we zoom out, not just focus on the parable and its details, the the twists and turns of this story and its characters, and see the, the context from which Jesus gets to this parable, then I think we have a wonderful application question that each of us can leave with. Here it is. Will you welcome others as God has welcomed you? Will you, friends, welcome others as God has welcomed you? Jesus, in this larger context, gives us a wonderful sign for self-evaluation. A sign that will help us recognize where our hearts, or in this case, to keep the metaphor going, where our stomachs are most attached. If, If we're all in on the feast to come, if our hope and joy is tied to the resurrection of the just... when we know that God has welcomed us despite ourselves, then we'll welcome others here as he has welcomed us rather than using others here to advance our agendas now. Let me show you where this is coming from. Back up with me to verse 12. Luke 14, verse 12. This is the last time Jesus is eating with the Pharisees in Luke. And as you see what he says to them here, you can figure out why the invitation stopped coming. He's at dinner with the Pharisees again. They're the religious elite of this time. I guess they're still intrigued enough by Jesus to, to want to have him over and see what he's up to, see what, he's, if, if, what all the fuss is about. Jesus comes right up to the, to the one who had invited him, like the guy who had the decency and the courtesy to send him an invitation. Jesus comes right up to him and basically scolds him for his invite list. When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Jesus says, they'll invite you in return and you'll be repaid. When you give a feast, look at his list. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Does that sound familiar? And you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Notice what Jesus is calling out here the politics of the dinner table. In this, in this honor and shame society in the first century world, who you invite says something about you. Your invite list for a party is a tool you use for your agenda. As one person put it, invitations serve as currency in the marketplace of prestige and power. You invite people, in other words, who have something you want. Somebody who can help your cause some, somehow or who in one way or another serves your interest. It's a kind of mercenary friendship in play at these banquets. What someone called relational legalism. Yeah, they're showing some sort of hospitality here. We could give them credit for that. They've opened their homes, but really they're serving themselves. And Jesus shifts their priorities here. Focus on those who can't repay you using the exact same list he uses in his parable. See, these are the folks who won't bring you honor in this society. They won't offer you wealth or connections in return. 
They aren't part of the web of, of people you want to know who know who know someone. That's why you start here. And did you notice why a person would, in, would change their invite list in the way Jesus suggests? This is the key. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You'll be repaid not by them, but at the resurrection of the just. It's just another way of describing the kingdom of God. The endless banquet, the party that he's invited you to. A feast prepared by the master. In other words, when you're looking to that reward, when you know that your stomach won't be satisfied by anything else but that, when you know it is perfectly secure, nothing can spoil it, and nothing can keep you from it. When you know that, you don't have to worry so much about squeezing as much value as possible from your dinner table here and now. See, these Pharisees that he's talking to, one of the main things they were known for is their belief in the resurrection. That separated them from some other big religious groups at that time. They were the ones who claimed to believe that we were all going to be resurrected into this new and wonderful kingdom. Jesus is looking around, basically calling their bluff. He says, when I look at who you invited to this dinner, it doesn't look to me like your heart is set on resurrection. This right here, this is the guest list of somebody who's got better things to do right here, right now. I wonder if you can see the point for me and you. Friends, what heaven is to you will show up in the people you pursue now. People that you pursue not for what you might gain from them, but from what's already been given to you. Whether you are longing for God's banquet is going to show up in who is around your dinner table. And our hope in God's kingdom changes for us who we welcome into our lives and why. I think our default mode is very much like that of these Pharisees. We tend to pursue people because we know that we'll get something somehow. It's nice to know people who know people. It's nice to have connections with others who have something to offer or gateways into more friendships or gateways into business opportunities, career advancement of one kind or another, maybe a boost in popularity or just a simple pleasure of being around somebody that, that gets you, somebody who's kind of similar to you, has a, a similar background or similar tastes and hobbies or similar standard of living. It's easy, it's enjoyable. And that can be our default mode all too often. But what Jesus is showing us here is that if our hearts are tethered to heaven, if our stomachs are hungry for what only the kingdom of God and that banquet to come will satisfy, if we're freed, in other words, from pressing our advantage here and now, well, then you can welcome others as he has welcomed you. So I leave you with the dinner table inventory. Friends, one of the clearest signs of where our stomach belongs is who shares our table. Think about it. And think about it not as some sort of standard to hold up and pass judgment on your past behavior, but as an opportunity that God's grace has now put in front of you for your future. I'm headed to that banquet. He's offered it to me. He's welcomed me. Who can I welcome in his name? Father, I, I pray that you would give us eyes to see how to honor you 
right here, right now in the way that we treat those who reflect our condition before you. Those who have nothing to offer us in return, perhaps, nothing that we can see right away. We pray that you would help us to honor you and our posture towards others. And we pray that our lives now and our relationships with each other now would be driven not by any kind of fear over whether or not we'll make the invite list in the end, but joy and hope over a banquet that's already ours. We pray to you in the hope that Jesus has given us and in his name, amen.